0: Rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. That was a complaint often heard during the Civil War. But how accurate was it? We'll talk about who fought the Civil War when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: In the great scheme of things, a minute isn't all that much, unless you happen to have a stroke. All of a sudden, those minutes count. Minutes that could mean losing your ability to talk, move, or walk. Which is why, if you can get help in time, your stroke can be treated. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face. If you experience this, call 911 immediately. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council.
0: Looking for answers in real estate? We break it down for you. Each week, the Exeter Group explores how successful investors evaluate and acquire real estate to build their portfolio. From financing tips, tax and accounting strategies, and advice on how to control risk, the Exeter Group entertains and informs while divulging secrets used by the most successful investors. Tune in to the Exeter Group every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Studio A. listening to world talk radio where the world comes to talk welcome back to Civil War talk radio I'm Jerry Prokopovich we're talking today with Vicki Bynum author of the Free State of Jones Mississippi's longest Civil war uh, discussing the the rebels against the rebellion in uh, in that state in the 1860s and uh, it is indeed Mississippi's longest civil war in the sense that it runs as a conflict over uh, loyalty, the lost cause, racial identity, and many other issues well into the mid-20th century. Uh, another issue that, that has run uh, for a long time, that has gotten much more attention in the last uh, 10 years in Civil War scholarship is uh, looking at the home front, the the lost cause myth, Uh, for many years, uh, presented us with an idea of the the solid South. All white Southerners were united on behalf of the Confederacy. And uh, to some extent, uh, uh, an impression that most Northerners uh, were united uh, behind Abraham Lincoln, with an exception of a few uh, Copperheads and some uh, some Irish uh, rioters in New York City. Uh, With a few minor exceptions, everybody's all for the union. Uh, We we know from more recent scholarship that's certainly not the case. And uh, Vicky, I understand your your current project deals uh, research project deals with uh, with looking at, at cracks in the Confederacy from within.
1: Yes, that's right. I'm trying to look at it a little bit more broadly and bring together some of my research in the various states. Uh, I'm just going to do. Th- I'm just going to look at three different states. I'm not trying to do, uh, you know, a, 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 an overwhelmingly uh, <laughs> uh, global look at uh, at, at uh, unionism. But I'm I'm looking at it. I'm comparing it in North Carolina, Mississippi, and Texas because those are the three states that I've done the most work in. And uh, and, I'm, and I want to bring it together in one book where people can can really look at and and also where I can really explore what are, what are similar and what are different about these these Different communities of dissent, and that's what I'm calling the book.
0: Okay, communities of, the of dissent. It, it, that you know, if we go back to uh, Drew Faust's work uh, ten ten years ago, she was arguing that there was there were weaknesses in Confederate nationalism.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: But since then, there's been quite a lot of work suggesting that that the home front was actually very strong. Uh, that that um, you're thinking of. Uh, Uh, Jacqueline Glass-Campbell's work on North Uh Carolinian women um, uh, just recently uh, published last month, actually, Victoria Ott's book on uh, uh, Confederate daughters, Confederate adolescent girls, and how how fervent they were for the cause. Um, There's a suggestion that that the women, in some cases, uh, were more loyal to the Confederacy.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and I think you can find that, and you can... uh, you can definitely argue that, um, but I don't think it's always the case. I mean, it's again where we're going here is I think we have to look at all of these other factors. The gender factor can take can, can take radically different routes depending on the community that it's embedded in. That's that's what I have found.
0: So it's not a reductionist argument: women are this way or that way.
1: Right? Uh, uh, but... No, I mean I think that women, by their position in society, have certain interests. That that do divide them from the men or separate them from the men, but I think those interests are always embedded in the community and interpreted through the community. So that there's you, you can't make an essentialist argument at any state, I think, in any way about how women are going to react. Yet you can still, uh, I think, apply gender analyses uh, within those communities as to how they act, you know, and, and why it takes a particular path that it does.
0: And, and you're looking specifically at, at unionist women, or communities where women are, are lean toward unionism. In the that's sense.
1: right. That's that's really um, my own research experience is to is to be looking at communities where you already do have really strong unionism. For example, I've returned to my research in North Carolina and looking a lot at that at that Quaker belt, particularly there of Randolph Moore and Montgomery County. And I wrote on that, uh, I I wrote quite a bit on that, actually, in Unruly Women, but I'm going in there now with the benefit of, you know, almost 20 years more research and thinking on this topic and trying to look at the factors. I mean, there you have such an important factor of of religion, Wesleyan Methodism, uh, as well as the heritage of of Quakerism. But it's really the Wesleyan Methodist movement of the late 1840s that that has a very vibrant quality there in terms of, of unionism during the war. So there, uh, the women that I that I'm looking at in the North Carolina Piedmont or Quaker Belt uh, are are really significantly different than the ones that I've been looking at back in Jones County. There are similarities, but there are also differences there in how they uh, and how in what part they play in these, these communities of dissent.
0: It, it sounds like they're more ideological in North Carolina.
1: I would say so. That's, that's what I would argue, is that you really do have a... Because I think also because the women, when you have a religious component to unionism, that's something that women are more directly involved in than, say, politics, political views. They're more directly involved in that, and, and that's really a religion of dissent already in terms of the, the, the conventional state apparatus and power structure. They're the, already familiar with dissent in the war I, I, comes.
0: I recall the the Underground Railroad, uh, such as it was in North Carolina, is also based in that area, through the, yeah. the, the Quaker communities. So, yeah. so you have That's a heritage. Why, oh,
1: yeah, very much so. So that yeah, that would have a tremendous uh, impact too.
0: So we have. Um, and I'm just thinking of the the different uh, approaches people have taken to this. Um, I wonder if looking at individual communities. Uh, which is the way a lot of this work has gone? I mentioned Jonathan Saris earlier. Uh, uh, Philip Paladin, looking at, at uh, the Shelton Laurel massacre in North Carolina, looking at one community in a sort of micro under a microscope. Um, is somebody ever going to pull all this together for us?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, and do you mean specifically in terms of women's role? That,
0: or or unionism um, in the South? Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, well, I think there are a lot of efforts to do that, and so far they have they have taken the form, of, like one other uh, anthology that I have an essay in, that Dan, Daniel Sutherland's. They've taken the approach of getting individual authors to contribute essays from all the various different uh, Unionist communities or wars within wars of the Civil War, and and that's been the, that's been a good beginning approach, I think. But I do think that, I mean, we have some really old studies, like Georgia Tatum's, and, or, or Georgia uh, Lawn, um, oh, Ella Lon and Georgia Tatum, both mm-hmm. uh, women historians did early studies where, where they gave uh, broader overviews, but those works are, are very, very dated now, and I think that, that there is time for another one. I think I'm trying to advance that by doing my three different states, but I just can't pretend that that's nearly as comprehensive as what you're talking about. And I think that's still to come, and I think it's it's begun in the form of of just a number of just excellent anthologies, uh, but but again, we don't have the grand synthesis. That's that's still waiting to come.
0: Well, that, that's I guess encouraging in a way. One always likes to know there's there's another thing to be done. Uh, yeah,
1: and that is that's definitely one that's that's ripe to be done because the the individual works, the monographs are there.
0: Well, well they are, and. I guess coming back to the uh, the, the book, uh the Struggle for a Vast Future," that, that Aaron Chi and Dean edited, in which you wrote about the home front uh, as an essay, I wrote uh, about the, the soldier's experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, a book like that, with lots of uh, fabulous illustrations, uh, uh, more than any academic press is ever likely to provide, uh, can reach a hopefully a relatively broad audience. And uh, if if it gets, uh, as hopefully it will be, if, if the movie of the Free State of Jones is made, this also will reach a broad audience. What I'm getting at here is, is related to my own public history background, is how we can get this story out uh, outside of academia. Uh, this well, that's been my evening.
1: goal all along. Even though my book, Free State of Jones, is still very much an academic book yet, when I wrote it, I was never forgetting. I mean, I was always had it in mind. I want this to be read more broadly than the classroom or the graduate seminar uh, or among you know scholars themselves. And uh, and it has been extremely widely read in Mississippi. But I think that that we still need to. I mean, I it it, it still needs to be uh, written in a way that's more accessible than that. And the movie will certainly start that. In, uh, I don't know where it'll go from there, but uh, it, it's just great. I, I share your goal. Of, of, I want to see this kind of history uh, much more accessible to people, much much more fun to read, but still scholarly in the in the sense that there there's an important uh, historically uh, sound uh, history here, and yet it's also great reading. And I think uh, I think that book that that you and I both have essays in, uh, Struggle for a Vast Future, does accomplish that. That's that's one of its great strengths.
0: It, it is, and uh, readers can find that, listeners can find that at places like uh, Barnes & Noble or Borders. It, it's, it's out there. It's uh, published by Osprey, and it, it's uh, definitely worth uh, worth looking at for the, the many contributors to that. Yeah. But uh, I, I want to stress to our listeners also that your book, The Free State of Jones, absolutely does fit into the categories you just described as uh a very interesting book to read not uh, uh not falling victim to the the academic uh uh disease or it's it's not filled with jargon it's not uh Dry. It tells a story that uh, an irresistible story.
1: Uh, yeah, well, that's certainly what I tried to do. For example, as I, I think I say in the introduction, I keep historiographical discussions. I don't discuss other authors in their works, except in the footnotes, and I did that on purpose because I think oftentimes that's what really just. Just makes a book no more fun to read anymore when you just have to constantly be learning how the author came to this and whose work they're borrowing from. It's very important to let people know that. But when you're telling a really good story, you want to keep that down below in those footnotes.
0: Exactly. That that is where it belongs, and and this this book does that. And and with the story that that tells us who from from who settled in Jones County and why sets the background that sets up the conflict uh, within the war itself, and then finally uh traces it up into the 20th century and the the conflict over the racial identity of the descendants uh, it really is is fascinating and uh it, well, I'm glad you I I hope so. it will make a, a, as good a movie as it is a book because it will
1: Oh, I do too. And um, Gary Ross told me he was going to include the 1946 miscegenation trial so he's definitely he's he's extremely interested in the story of Rachel Knight and the story of the uh, of the all the racial dynamics of it. So I think he's going to tell a pretty sweeping story there, that Universal will be producing a pretty sweeping story, mm-hmm. and I'm very glad of that.
0: Well, that, that would be the way to go. I remember when Glory came out, um, thinking that the story of, of Charlotte uh, Forten was not put in that movie, the uh, the abolitionist mm-hmm. uh, woman who, who knew Robert Goldshaw, the commander of the 54th, and who by some... There, there's some hints, circumstantial hints, there might have been a romance there, and I, I thought for sure they would just blow that up in the movie. Yeah, and...
1: it's it's uh, you wonder how those decisions are made. I mean, why that wasn't done? It seemed like a it seems like such a wonderful opportunity, and you know, you've got so much information on Charlotte Fortin that you could you could really work with it.
0: You could, and and. Uh if if the idea of not exploiting a possible romance uh in a hollywood movie struck me as, as odd that they didn't but uh certainly we'll see what happens here with uh uh with with the free state of jones
1: yes we certainly will <laughs>
0: hopefully that, that will get in there well i also uh very much hope you will join us here uh, at east carolina university in the
1: uh, well i am hoping to do just that um, yeah I'm, I'm very excited about it so
0: and, and uh, if you do, you and I will get to talk a lot more. And, listeners, uh, you will get the opportunity to find out more about this fascinating story by reading The Free State of Jones, Mississippi's Longest Civil War by Victoria E. Bynum. Highly recommended. Uh, hope you listen to it. And, Vicki, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's been, it's been fun to talk about it.
0: <laughs> and, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.